Our scripture today is um, Ephesians chapter 1, first 14 verses, and um, it's on page 976 in your pew Bible. If you're interested, it's also on the screens. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in him we have an obtain, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Go ahead and find your Bibles again, uh, your way to Ephesians chapter 1. Thank you, Charlotte, for reading a moment ago. If you were to guess what the Christian faith was all about based on a stroll through the Christianity section at the local Barnes and Noble, you would likely come to several different conclusions. Uh, besides a, an awkward obsession with Amish romance and uh, trips to heaven and back and the end of the world and things like that, the main conclusion that you're likely to draw is that God is wildly obsessed with you. In fact, based on the books that we buy, the main character of Christianity isn't really God at all. It's us. How to become a better you. How to simplify your life. How to have a, hap a happy family or a New teenager by Friday. Live your best life now. We are the main character of most of what we spend our money on in the bookstore. To cite just one example from a New York Times bestseller by Joel Osteen. It's time to get your hopes up. Enlarge your vision and get ready for the new things that God has on the horizon. 
Your best days are not behind you. They're in front of you. God has planted seeds of greatness in you. You have everything you need to fulfill your God-given destiny. God has already put in the talent, the creativity, the discipline, the wisdom, and the determination. It's all in you. You are full of potential. But you have to do your part and start tapping into it. You have to make better use of the gifts and talents that God has given you. Here's another one. Whether you flounder or flourish is always in your hands. You are the single biggest influence in your life. Your journey begins with a choice to get up, step out, and live fully. Actually, that second one wasn't Osteen. That was Oprah. But it's hard to tell the difference, isn't it? I mean, if we guessed what Christianity was about based on the best sellers in the Christianity section, it's barely distinguishable from the kind of self-help kitsch that puts us at the center of the universe, that makes us the hero of our own stories. We would probably have to summarize the gospel something like, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, by the way. Sometimes, sometimes people think that that's a verse in the Bible. That's not even a biblical idea. But it's common, isn't it? But far more important than surveying Barnes & Noble is to take an inventory of our own hearts. What is it that draws me to the gospel? What am I looking for? What is it that keeps me going back? If someone were to guess what Christianity is all about based on my life, what I say, what I do, what I think and believe, how would they describe it? We began a new series last week asking the big question of what difference does the gospel of Jesus make in everyday life? At home, at school, at work, in the world, in the church, in my own heart, across the globe. And when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. Or to use the, the four key words that we looked at last week to kind of summarize the gospel. It's news about God's kingdom, which he establishes through his cross and is received by grace. News, kingdom, cross, grace. The Apostle Paul tells us that the gospel is of first importance. It was the main thing that he wanted his churches to get and hold on to. Not just because it's through believing the gospel that we have relationship with God, but because it's also through believing the gospel more and more deeply that we grow in our relationship with God, in our, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions. We can't simply agree with the gospel or know facts about the gospel. We must believe it and apply it to every facet of life. 
That's what we're looking at in this series. The gospel is comprehensively relevant. It applies to everything. That's the goal, is to kind of see, okay, so how does it apply here and here and here? But there's a subtle danger in trying to apply the gospel to all of life. And it's the danger of making the gospel more about us than about God. In our effort to make the good news relevant, we begin with our lives, our stories, our dreams and and desires, our problems, and then we kind of look and see, how does God fit into that? What difference does he make? And it's the kind of danger that results in in the the man-centered, self-help version of Christianity that dominates America today. None of us are immune from that. But when we look at the Bible, we see that from beginning to end, the gospel is thoroughly God-centered. It's not human-centered, it's God-centered. He is the main character. Our salvation is from him, by him, and for him. And few passages make that point more clearly and comprehensively than the opening hymn in Ephesians 1. And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning. Uh, Pray with me as we take a look at God's word. Lord, it is your voice that we want to hear this morning. This is your word. It comes from you. And Lord, it's by your grace that we're able to hear it. And so we pray that your spirit would be with us and that you would give us ears to hear it that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you and that you would change our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Ephesians uh, is one of the letters in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison for preaching the gospel. He was thrown in prison. And it was probably intended to be read by several churches in the region, not just in Ephesus. There's a a few reasons for that, but one, it it lacks a lot of the personal references that are so common in so many of Paul's epistles. And it starts with a rather unique beginning. See, most of Paul's letters, when you look at them, he starts with a greeting followed by kind of a prayer of thanksgiving for the church that he's writing to. But here, he starts with the greeting, but then he immediately breaks into song before he gets to the prayer. Uh, In fact, he he starts with a hymn of praise to God that's very much like one of the psalms we might find in the Old Testament. Verses 3 to 14 is that psalm, our our passage. Notice how he begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praising God. He's blessing God. uh, Very much like one of the Old Testament psalms. Why is he blessing God and praising him? Well, for blessing us. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he's praising God. He's blessing God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What what does he mean by that? What kind of blessings is he talking about? 
Well, he tells us if we keep reading. He unfolds the different kinds of blessings that we've received. And specifically, the blessing of being included in God's great plan of salvation. Verses 3 through 4, excuse me, 3 through 14, give us what's been described as a bird's eye view of the whole divine plan of salvation. So a celebration of God's divine saving purposes from eternity to eternity. When we talk about salvation, we often are are simply talking about a single moment in our lives. But we see here that that's part of a much bigger story that began before creation even started and that lasts all the way through eternity. Tom Wright uh, explains that Paul's great prayer at the opening of this letter is a celebration of the larger story within which every single Christian story, every story of individual conversion, faith, spiritual life, obedience, and hope is set. And only by understanding and celebrating the larger story can we hope to understand everything that's going on in our own individual smaller stories. And so observe God at work in and through our own lives. We need to see the big picture of what God is doing in order to make sense of what he's doing in me. And if that's the case, then the true relevance of the gospel is clear, not by starting with our own stories, our own dreams, our own problems, but by starting with the big story of what God has been doing to accomplish his plan from eternity to eternity. So the story of the gospel, the story that actually makes sense of my life, is a thoroughly God-centered story. He's the main character. And to say that it's God-centered, or to say that something is God-centered, doesn't mean that it's irrelevant for us, though. And we need to make that clear doesn't mean that it has no value or impact on us just because we're not the main character. Uh, It's quite the opposite, in fact. Um, The gospel impacts us in every way. It changes everything. There's nothing more powerful, more important, more significant or satisfying. There's nothing more secure or life-giving than the good news of Jesus. And a brief tour of our passage will make that clear. So if you look, just kind of skim along with me. It's through the good news of Jesus that we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in verse 3. And a blessing is by definition something that's good for you. So, So God's the main character, but we find ourselves being blessed in this story. A blessing is good for you. And, and it's not that we receive only some blessings. We've received Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has withheld from us nothing that is of value for conforming our lives to his purpose and will. Every spiritual blessing. More specifically, verse 4, we've been chosen by him. We've been drafted for God's team to be holy and blameless and to live for him, to represent him and worship him. Verse 5, we were destined to be adopted as his children, to become part of his family. He writes us into his story. 
We've been redeemed. We've been brought out of slavery, forgiven of our sins through Christ in verse 7, lavished with his grace in verse 8. We've been let in on the great mystery of God's purposes for all of creation and salvation, how he's working all of history so as to sum up everything in his son, verses 9 and 10. And he's let us into that secret. He has received, excuse me, we have received an inheritance in Christ. We've been received the, the promise of God's eternal presence in a new creation, verses 11 and 12. And we've been stamped as heirs of that new creation by the Holy Spirit, whose presence and power guarantees that we will receive it, verses 13 and 14. And so though we're not the main character of the story, it benefits us in every way. It's the best story there is for us. There's nothing better. And yet, we're not the main point either, are we? It's kind of ironic. You know, there are few passages that give us a more complete picture of what it means to be saved, of what our salvation looks like, and yet we're not the main point of that passage. It's a celebration of what God has done. And it's precisely this point that we're tempted to miss when we try and apply the gospel to our lives. There's a temptation to think that in order for the gospel to be relevant to me, that I have to start here and then fit it in. Or that it's something that I have to accomplish or do. Or at least that it's something that should result in my glory and praise. So in other words, we're tempted to approach the gospel as though it's from us or by us or for us in some way. It's what we call a a man-centered or a human-centered gospel. So first, we think that the gospel is from us. That is, that it exists according to our plans for our own purposes to achieve our dreams and desires i mean sure technically it comes from god but he's doing what he's doing in order to help us achieve greatness and realize our full potential what's your dream what's your desire god wants to help you fulfill that what's wrong with your life what what do you need fixed god wants to fix that too He's wildly obsessed with you. That's, that's what we want to think. And, and, of course, there's a kernel of truth in that, if you think about it. I mean, God does want to deliver us from all that's wrong in this world, from everything that's broken. He does want to do that. And, and he does want to satisfy our deepest desires and longings. He is madly in love with his children. That's true. But whose plans and purposes are driving that care and that love? And according to whose timetable do we expect it to work out? God's or ours? When we start with our own desires and our own agenda, our own stories, and then come to God for help with that, we're subjecting God's will to our own will. 
We make ourselves the main character of the story, the, the center of the universe, and God becomes a means to our end. Which may seem like no big deal until his will doesn't line up with my will. Then we run into problems. God calls me to do something in his word that I don't want to do. Or he tells me that something I very much want to do is actually sinful. Or God's will includes suffering and hardship in my life. But that's not part of my script. And so when our plans clash, who wins? If God is the center of the gospel, then I must subject my will to his and trust him even if it doesn't make sense. But if I'm the center, then I give myself permission to ignore him whenever I disagree. Now he's not only a means to my end, he's dispensable. He's like a triple-A catcher, you know. We, we call on him when we need him, and, and we kind of feel like we're doing him a favor, giving him attention. He should be happy. But otherwise, you just kind of stay over there practicing, keep in shape, and wait by the phone for me, and, and we'll call when we need you. That's how we treat him. And as crass as that portrait kind of sounds, sociological research has actually confirmed that this is how most people think about God in the United States. Both Pastor Bruce and I have talked in the past about this, but this man-centered portrait of the gospel is precisely what Christian Smith documented in several research projects on the religious lives of young people in America. It's where he coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. And so it's moralistic, our version of God, our vision of God. It's moralistic. God wants us to be good. It's therapeutic. God wants us to feel good about ourselves. But it's deistic. It's deism. God's there, but he's not really that involved unless we call on him and need him. In short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process. That is the default of American spirituality. That's what the average person thinks about God. It's a very man-centered gospel. So how does all of that compare with what Scripture actually says about the good news, about our salvation? Look with me again at Ephesians chapter 1. First, notice how often words like will and purpose and plan and counsel occur in this passage. Eight times you have those words occurring in verses 5, 9, and 11. So somebody has a plan, and the gospel's being accomplished according to it. But whose plan is on display in each of those occurrences? It's always God's. God's plan. Look, just for one example, look at verse 11. 
in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I don't think he could state any more clearly whose plans are being accomplished in the gospel. This is God's plan. It's from him. God's sovereignty in our salvation is all over this passage. And we read words like chose or elected in verse 3 or predestined in verses 5 and 11. And some of us kind of squirm a little bit at the thought of such a definitive claim of sovereignty. But friends, that's exactly what God is doing here. This is a definitive claim that salvation is from God and not from us. And what is his purpose in doing it? What is it that he's actually been planning to accomplish from before creation even began? He tells us the heart of his plan in verse 10. It's a plan for the fullness of time to unite or to sum up all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, God's plan is to take everything in creation, everything in heaven and on earth, everything that is true and good and beautiful and everything that is broken and stained by sin and rebellion, to take that and bring it all together in his son and reconcile it to himself through the cross to give it new sense, new significance, new meaning and fulfillment as it relates to Christ. Christ is to become the centerpiece, the key that unlocks the meaning of everything that is. He's the one who's making all things new. He's the one who holds everything together. And God's great plan is for Jesus to be the centerpiece of the story of God and the story of us. Not for us to be the centerpiece. And yet, if Jesus is your Savior, if you've trusted in him personally, if he's your your king, then by God's grace, by his design, his choice, his love, he planned for you to be part of that story even before creation began. So it's God-centered, but that doesn't mean you're not part of it. Before the first Adam of this world was formed, he ordained you to become his child. Isn't that amazing? He planned for you to receive an inheritance through his son. If we really capture the scope and the beauty of God's great plan of salvation, of the story that God is telling, we see it's so much more meaningful and fulfilling than anything that we could come up with. His plan is supreme and his plan is beautiful. And our lives make sense in light of how we fit into his plan, not the other way around. Salvation is from God. The second way that we're tempted to kind of put ourselves at the center and make God kind of a supporting role in the story of me 
is by thinking that salvation is by us, that it's something that we do for God as opposed to something he's done for us. We talked a little bit about that last week when we talked about the importance of how the gospel is news. It's not advice. It's news, a report. Our default as fallen human beings is to try and perform for God's favor, to try and earn his love and gain his acceptance by being good enough for him, by doing things, trying you know, more good than bad. And we have all sorts of different formulas we come up with in order to try and achieve that. But that's our main goal as fallen human beings, to try and earn God's love and acceptance. To be the hero of our own story. You're the single biggest influence in your life. You are full of potential, but you have to do your part and start tapping into it. And we like to think this because by it, we think we can kind of gain back some of the control that we give up when we acknowledge that it's God's plan that is ruling the universe, not our own. We think maybe I can contribute something to this after all. But Ephesians 2 tells us something very different about ourselves. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If salvation is up to us, we are in big trouble. Last I knew, a dead person can't save himself. and That's what we've got to work with apart from the love of Christ. But we're not apart from the love of Christ, are we? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's not something we do for God, but it is something God has done decisively through his son, even while we were dead and helpless. In his love, in his grace, He makes us alive together with Christ. Our salvation is accomplished by God from beginning to end. And when we look at the hymn again, we can see the glorious freedom and hope and security that comes from recognizing that this is God's work and it's not up to me. Each person of the Trinity shows up in these verses. In verses 3 through 6, we see the work of the Father in planning our salvation. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the Beloved. And then in verses 7 to 12, we see the work of the Son in accomplishing our salvation. So the Father plans it, the Son accomplishes it. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So the Father is at work planning, the Son is at work accomplishing, the Spirit is at work securing our salvation. Verses 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Salvation is by God from beginning to end. It's his work. Praise God that it's his work and that it doesn't depend on me. As much as we want to be the hero of our own stories, the reality is we can't do it. We're not strong enough. We're not good enough. We need a savior. And that's exactly who Jesus is. That's exactly what he came to do. To save us from our sin. To give us new life. To cancel the debt that we owe. That we might be adopted into God's family. And find our life and meaning and eternal hope in him. Salvation is by God not us. But there's one more way that we're tempted to make the gospel more about me than about God. If I can't rightfully claim that it's from me or that it's by me, that doesn't stop me from thinking that it's ultimately for me. That God did what he did because I'm so valuable and special. He did what he did in order to make much of us. So in other words, if I can't be the hero, at least I can be the prize. The the treasure that makes everything worth it. And so the gospel becomes a testament to our own value and glory instead of the glory of God. And again, there's a kernel of truth here. God's people are, in fact, his treasured possession. That's how he describes us. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says of Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And what he says of Israel there, he says of the church in 1 Peter 2. We are his treasured possession. He delights in us. But yet, listen to what else he says in Deuteronomy 7, in the very next verse. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So so God didn't 
save Israel because they were so much better than all of the other peoples or so much more valuable. He didn't save them in order to make much of them. In fact, when we turn away from God in sin and rebellion, we become enemies of God. Children of his wrath, as we read in Ephesians 2. God saved Israel out of his love and his mercy for them. Not because they deserved it, but because of his grace. And in faithfulness to his own plans and promises. And because he saved them, they are now indescribably valuable. See how that works. Our value, we're not... Our value is a result of salvation, not the reason for it. See that? And the same is true for, the, for us in Christ. We are treasured by God, not because of who we are or what we've done, and he just wants to celebrate that and make much of us. We're treasured by God because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and if, we were, if we're united with him by faith, then that becomes true of us. We find our identity and our value in Christ. And so if God values his son, he values those who are in his son. We become a treasured possession as a result of being saved. When God saves us, we become a trophy of his grace. If you you walk by a trophy case in a high school, you know, the cups that are in that case, they're beautiful. You know, they're, they're, they're cool to look at. But it's not the cups themselves that we ultimately marvel at. It's the accomplishments of the people that they represent. That's what they're really pointing to. They're a trophy pointing to the accomplishments of the one who, the champion who won them. And so... That's what we are. We are trophies. We're beautiful. We're treasures. But we are treasures that reflect the glory of the one who won us. The glory of our champion and our savior, Christ. The gospel is ultimately for God and his glory, not ours. Notice how each of the three sections that we just read a minute ago, how each of them end with the same phrase to the praise of his glory. Why did the Father plan what he planned? To the praise of his glorious grace. Why did the Son accomplish our redemption through his blood? To the praise of his glory. Why does the Spirit seal us and secure us till the end? To the praise of his glory. It's the glory of God from beginning to end that drives his great plan of salvation. He's the main character. Now, doesn't that make God kind of selfish? No, when you think about it. I mean, he's so obsessed with his own glory. If, if you or I acted that way, we would sit, somebody would sit you down and have a little talk about selfishness and, and arrogance and so on. Why is it okay for God to be passionate about his own glory? John Piper asks the question, how is God's passion for his glory not a sinful form of narcissism or megalomania? His answer, God's passion for his glory is the essence of his love to us. But narcissism and megalomania are not love. God's love for us is not mainly making much of us, 
but his giving us the ability to enjoy making much of him forever. In other words, God's love for us keeps God at the center. God's love for us exalts his value and our satisfaction in it. If God's love made us central and focused on our value, it would distract us from what is most precious, namely himself. Love labors and suffers to enthrall us with what is infinitely and eternally satisfying, God. Therefore, God's love labors and suffers to break our bondage to the idol of self and focus our affections on the treasure of God. God's passionate for his glory because there's nothing better for us than to be satisfied in his glory. The gospel is from God, by God, and for God. It applies to everything. But it's most relevant for our lives, not when we are at the center, but when we keep God at the center. So if you want to see what difference the the good news of Jesus makes, what difference the life and death and resurrection of Christ makes, don't start by looking at your life. Start by looking at God and his story. Start by looking at Jesus, seeing him as the centerpiece of God's great plan of salvation. Now, all things are summed up and united in him. See what he's done on the cross and, and the real what it really means to be forgiven. Dream about the inheritance that he has secured for you and that the Spirit has sealed you for. And see yourself as part of that story. The privilege of being written into it by the love of God, not because we deserved it, but because he is gracious and loving. Our lives only make sense and find their ultimate meaning and direction as they fit into the big story of God, our Savior and King. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess that there is a daily mutiny in our hearts over whose kingdom and glory we're going to live for. Lord, we confess that so often we make life, we make faith, we make everything about us. And Lord, thank you that in acknowledging that it's not about us doesn't mean that we don't have value that we don't have a role to play. Thank you that in acknowledging that your good news is about you, that that's what actually gives us meaning and significance in you. Lord, help us to understand that and help us to apply it and to keep that at the center as we walk through this series in the months ahead, as we think about all the different ways 
that your good news changes each aspect of our life. Lord, keep us remembering and fixed on the fact that it's your good news. That it's from you and by you and for you. And Lord, may our hearts sing and rejoice in light of that truth, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.